Hey, this is Gina Grad. Hi, this is Teresa Strasser. Hi, everyone. This is Mike Errico. Hey there. This is Casey Cavalier. I'm Rocky Rose. And you are listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Lucky you. Welcome to The Jay Franzi Show. A behind-the-curtain look at the entertainment industry with insights you can't pay for and stories you've never heard. Now, here's your host, Jay Franzi. Well, hello and welcome to the show. I am Jay Franzi, and if you are new here, this is where we take a deep dive into the entertainment industry to provide you with valuable insights and entertaining stories. This week, we get to talk with a drummer and a drum tech. We'll talk with John Root. We'll talk to him about how he get to start playing drums, how he get his first gig in Nashville, you know, at the Opry, and we'll take a deep dive into his time with Brooks and Dunn. Now, I met John when I first got to Nashville on my very first recording session. I was working with a producer named Jim Cristaldi, and John was hired to play drums. I've worked with John several times since then, and I can't wait to catch up with him tonight. So if you'd like to join in, comment, or fire off any questions, please head over to jfranzi.com. Now let's get started. John, sir, how are you? Good, Jay. How are you doing? I am fantastic. I am so happy to have you here, sir. Thank you for joining tonight. Yeah, thanks for asking me. Thank you. So I am excited. I'd like to just jump in. I know we met years ago playing on a session in Nashville, and I just want to know what you're up to these days. Go ahead and start there for us. Well, I've been playing about two or three gigs a week, generally uh, different clubs around town. Uh, and I have a um, also have a business where I maintain the house drum sets on Lower Broadway. All the bars down there have uh, their own house kit. And so I'll go in once a week and maintain the kits and change heads. And I have relationships with the manufacturers. So if there's any problems or I need parts or a club needs a new kit, I can always go to them. And then uh, for the past couple years, I've been uh, on the road as the drum tech for Brooks and Dunn. That's awesome. Uh, last year, Trey Gray was their drummer who'd been there for 20 years. And now we have Greg Morrow out there. And uh, I get to hang out with Greg and take care of his kit. The Brooks and Dunn gig is really good. It's only uh, about 23 shows a year. 25 maybe so i'm not not gone a lot and can still maintain everything in town well while that's going on too that's awesome greg's an awesome drummer i mean he's one of the best i've worked with him in the studio quite a bit oh yeah that's gonna be a pleasure to work with him and he's just a nice guy yeah it's it's tough to just sit there and watch you know someone like him play for 90 minutes a night you know (laughs) (laughs) well let's talk about that for a minute because you're a drummer you play drums so how did that all start for you well, uh, actually, it was, uh, I think it was like fifth grade. I stopped at a friend's house, and he had a drum set, and it wasn't getting played. And I thought it was cool, and, and uh, he wouldn't let me play it. So, you know, it was like it just kind of started started to burn, you know. That's awesome. And uh, a neighbor up the street played drums, and I'd hang out his basement door and listen to him play drums. And my brother played guitar, so... You know, I just started, uh, I got my parents bought me a snare drum, a Ludwig Superphonic, and then eventually added on a bass drum and then a hi-hat stand, and 
10 years old, just started started going from there. Alice Cooper and Elton John, you know? There you go. Not too bad of a, a team to look up to. No. I started in elementary school. My parents bought me a snare drum, and that was my instrument in school. But past the snare drum, I cannot get all four limbs to do something different. I don't know how <laughs> how you could do that. And to do it at such a young age. So is there a trick to it? Well, honestly, there was an Alice Cooper song on a School's Out album called Public Animal Number 9. And it actually starts out with just a hi-hat. And then it adds the bass drum in for like two bars. And then the snare drum comes in two bars after that. And I just just got it from there. You know, I just listened to that song and it kind of broke it down and taught me how to listen for the different parts and put it together. Do you think it's possible for anybody to learn how to move their limbs independently? Or do you think that's just something you're born with? No, I think I think anyone can learn it. Really? It's just a, a dedication that you put into it. And, and there's definitely, uh, we all hit walls of frustration at different points, but it's just having the motivation to move past those walls. You start early. And at what point did you start working sessions in Nashville? Well, I moved here in 93, so I was 29 years old. I grew up in Connecticut and played in all sorts of bands up in that area. A fellow New Englander. I love that. <laughs> yeah. We, I was in a country band, and we were playing all over New England, and we had a guitar player from Nashville, Darren Favorite. And he was in our band, and when he moved back home, we got some part-timers that could fill in for him. We couldn't get the full-time thing really happening, and I decided to move to Nashville. And uh, with Darren's help, I got some gigs right off the bat. I moved to town on a Wednesday, and on Friday I had a gig on the Opry playing on the Grand Ole Gospel time every Friday night. No way. That quick? That quick. Wednesday oh, to Friday, yeah. Holy cow. I know I moved there in 99, and I think that's the year that I met you. I think the first one of the first sessions I worked on was in 99 with Jim Cristaldi. Mm -hmm. So I worked on a couple projects with you. But no, I didn't go straight from Arrival to the Opry, no. <laughs> what's, what's that like? I mean, to be new to town and to have one of your, probably your first gig to be at the Opry. Yeah, I didn't appreciate it as much as I should have. Because it was just, you know, I just fell into it. But it was like I was bona fide all of a sudden. You know, it's like people would say, oh, you're new to town. Really? You know? <laughs> oh, really? You got any gigs? You know, it's like, well, yeah, I got this opera spot off right. Oh, really? Well, hey, I could use you for this. You know? You've got cred all of, all of a sudden. Right. So it, it helped. Oh, I'm sure it helped you. I'm sure it helps you get all those gigs from that point moving forward. But, man, I mean... I guess, like you said, you're early and you don't know how it works and you get your first gig there, but that's an amazing gig for your first gig. With the gospel show, every every week there was Jimmy Snow was the preacher, so we'd back him up on a couple songs, and then there'd be guests, and these guests would be coming from all over the world. And so uh, we'd be learning new songs backstage right before going out to play a live radio show. So right away I got used to, you know, what I play has to count. You know, don't try anything. Just play for the song and, and play the chart. And it helped a lot. And while those people would come around from all over the country or the world to play the Opry, they'd cut an album while they were in Nashville. And I got the recording experience that way uh, 
cutting records doing that. Well, Nashville's known for they're known for speed. The musicians in Nashville yeah. have to move quick. So for you to learn that at the Opry, and you said you were doing that weekly. So did that help transition to the studio where they put a chart in front of you and here go? Oh, yeah. Lots of times uh, on the albums, we would get a chart and we would play down. We'd get through the second verse, maybe, and the leader would say, okay, stop, let's go red. And then we'd just go back to the top of the chart and play it down. Without ever even finishing the whole song one time. Right. And then go to the next song. He would make sure that we just had the attitude and the feel and the, you know, the tempo and the key was right for the singer. And and he liked to cut it nice and fresh, you know. <laughs> so what was that experience like for you? Is that, were you nervous at first? Oh, yeah, very nervous. And a lot of the players that I played with were, you know, the, the old Nashville A team. Yeah. You know, uh, Leon Rhodes, Billy Linneman, Jimmy Caps, you know, all, all of the opera guys. You know, you just you just learn. There was an acoustic player, Leo Jackson, who played on a lot of Alabama records, Jim Reeve records. I mean, going back to the sixties, he was he was an acoustic guitar player that everyone used. And just learning how to how to, you know, play my hi hat with that acoustic guitar and learning how we would work together. And, you know, here's a guy that was, you know, sixty, seventy years old working with some punk twenty nine <laughs> year old, new to town Yankee. You know, yeah, you and me both. <laughs> that uh, he was uh, you you know, he was just gracious and you know a good guy, and they, none of these guys would cut you too much rope, but they would definitely help you out. You know, <laughs> I laugh because there wasn't a single day that went by while I was in Nashville where somebody didn't call me a Yankee, and I I know you know everybody <laughs> picks on everybody, but that was the way they picked on me. Was oh look at the Yankee, yeah. he doesn't know country music. Uh, yeah. That's awesome. You you learn from the best of the best, and so that's got to help you. And then I know we talk about Broadway, and I don't know if people realize that that's a big deal within itself, playing on Broadway. And a lot of people get their start down on Broadway, and, I mean, the music there starts at, what, 10 a.m. and goes till 2 in the morning? or Till 2. Yeah. Yeah. So you're playing there. So what's it like for you there? Are you bouncing between bands? Did you find one band? For maybe about five years, I played with one band, and this was back in 97, and Broadway wasn't what it is now. You know, it was where there were like maybe five clubs down there, and there was more of a band attitude. And then it slowly turned into, well, hey, let me pick up another shift, and I can work with this singer on Tuesdays from 6 to 10. And this singer needs a needs a drummer on Thursdays. So now I've got another gig at Thursday where I'm playing from 10 to 2. And you just start putting together, you know, different shifts and building up your schedule. And there's been times where, you know, I've done 14 gigs in a week down on Broadway with doing doubles. And I did a triple one time, which I'd never do again. I play left-handed. So it's a left-handed setup mirror so every time i go in i gotta turn the kid around right so to do that for a triple there's like no time to eat a peanut butter sandwich you know between you know and that's only because the triples at three different bars three different bars yeah i played the first right. bar went to the second bar and then went back to the first bar for the third gig to play what was it two to six six to ten and then a ten to two 
I hurt in places I didn't think <laughs> would. So I know the majority of people play right-handed. And yeah. when you go in, you have to take the time to change the kit around. But when you leave, do you put the kit back? I don't put the kit back. And this has been a little bit of a discussion lately on a, on a Facebook drummers group. You don't know who's coming in after you. You know, there could be another left-handed drummer. Rare, but it has happened. As well as, you know, some drummers are going to use two rack toms up and one down or two floor toms and one rack tom. So for me to take the time to approximate what I think their setup is going to be, I'm wasting my time and as well as theirs because it's not what they're going to be looking for. Well, that would make sense. I mean, the person who's arriving should set it up to their liking, and then when they leave, let it be for the next person to come set it up to their liking. Yeah. So, no, I could understand that. It's just playing left-handed is a completely different setup, so it's not like just adjusting a tom or something. Right, no. completely moving the, the kit around, so... And there's left-handed drummers that will play open-handed on a right-handed kit. But um, yeah, I had a teacher tell me to do this, and, you know, here I am. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. So let me ask you, I mean, you're playing in all those bars, and you're bouncing between the bars and working with the different bands. So I'm assuming that's going to help you with your networking. And does that help you get into more studio gigs as time goes on? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, the studio thing... And the live thing, it's gotten a lot closer together than it used to be. They used to be pretty much two separate camps. But because of the home recording process, and even now where people have mics in there, you know, you know, you can send stems back and forth to to play tracks, you know, it's it's changed a lot where uh, where there's a lot more of a people have recording studios and recording capability now. So it's not as defined, you know, two different camps like it used to be. Well, that's something we've talked about in the past on a couple of occasions. And I mean, Jeff King was on a couple of weeks ago. I know he's on the road with you now. And when he was on, I was asking him too about the transition from being a live musician to being a studio musician, because he is truly one of the best. He's played on thousands of records at this point, but he still goes on the road now. And I was asking about that. And did he find it to be a, a hard transition because when I was there, everybody was complaining that the guys on the road couldn't get gigs in the studio. So, and once you go on the road, you were forgotten about in the studio. Yeah. And I'm glad to hear that's not not as bad these days. Yeah. When I came to town, I, you know, I had I had a, a guy, a mentor. He was a the band leader of the Opry band, the gospel band, and he, he was basically like, you don't let people know you're out of town. You don't let them know you're on the road if you want to do the studio thing. That's changed a lot now. And I would have to say that Jason Aldean with his band, with uh, Rich Redman on drums and Tully and those guys, that that, that kind of started to bring where people were using their bands more again in the studio, which to me, it, it makes sense because if they're with you 200 days a year, you know, I think they're, they're going to be able to find your needs in the studio. I just always felt like it was a, a producer not wanting to take any type of uh, risk by using road players. And why not use the same five guys that played on the last hit record? Exactly. But if your band is, especially these days, if your band is made up of studio musicians, there's no yeah. reason why they can't be the guys on your record. Right. But I remember back a while back when he, Tim was making his record, he couldn't, 
he couldn't use his own band for the first couple records, and he was very upset about that. And finally, he used his clout to be able to make that happen. Yeah. But nowadays, it's more likely to happen without that. Yeah. Well, because the whole the whole label, the whole you know distribution, the industry has changed so much. You know, you were cutting ten songs for a record before you released one, and now you're you know you're basically recording one record at a time or you're streaming a song, you know? Well, you grew up in, in the Northeast like I did, and um, you mentioned Alice Cooper and stuff, but who were your influences growing up? Well, uh, I remember uh, my siblings playing Motown and Joe Cocker and James oh, yeah. Brown records, my parents playing Herb Albert, you know, and Tijuana Brass, you know, just uh, the Beatles, that type of stuff. But when I started drumming, it was it was Alice Cooper, it was Elton John, it was Yes, Genesis, Almond Brothers, Mad Dogs and Englishmen, Joe Cocker. You know, just just that type of stuff. I I didn't start playing country until until '85 because uh, there wasn't really a country station in Connecticut. Right. And grew up rock and roll, playing Queen and yeah. the Cars and Blondie and all that stuff. And I was in a band called the Hibachi Brother Barbecue Big Band. And yeah. they did international dance music. We were a 10-piece band with horns and percussion and barambao and accordion and cello. And we played klezmer and jazz and <laughs> Portuguese and blues and just uh, all these different styles. And when I got out of that band, I saw an ad for a country drummer. And I was like, well, I hadn't played that style. So joined a country band. Within country music, there's so many different styles. There's swing, there's blues, there's rock, rockabilly. There's Appalachian, you know, the bluegrass and mountain music. So there's all these different styles that you can bring into this one classification as country. So uh, that's kind of what, what kept me there. Oh, that's very cool. I mean, again, growing up in the Northeast, I played in rock bands and different genres, like you said, within within rock music. I played in metal music. I played in hair metal music. I played in rock music, southern rock music. But to me, it was all just rock music. Yeah. And when I got down to Nashville, I thought the same thing. It's country music, like you're saying. It's just a little bit of everything. But... No, I mean, they wanted you to specialize when I was there. You know, do you specialize in this and do you specialize in that? And speaking of changing things, let's talk about technology for a second because you've been in the industry long enough to experience a whole bunch of different types of technology. How has that influenced the way you play? Uh, I'm pretty uh, caveman. You know, I've, I had the... I had the drum cat and the Elisa D4 and the Amy percussion yeah. when I came to town and was doing a lot of sessions on on the pads and, and, and things like that. I had accounts doing kids TV shows. We're playing a drum cat, which is like a TV dinner. Just when that kind of phased out, I was doing more acoustic, just playing acoustic stuff. And the uh, the triggered cross stick was phasing out to just back to the natural cross stick. So uh, basically, I, I, I just own drums and cymbals and sticks and percussion these days. You know, I've got a little loop machine if I need it. Now, do you use that in the studio? Uh, no, not really. You don't create your own clicks? No, that's uh, the studios mostly do that. You know, I have that all set up already. No, that's cool. I know um, depending on who you work with, some people create their own, some some don't. 
Yeah. I always like to generate the click for the band because that way it's to Pro Tools where, you know, I don't have to line things up after the fact. Yeah. And that's another point. I mean, talking about Pro Tools, you started while there was still tape, and now you're in the world of Pro Tools. How is that different for you? Well, uh, uh, anybody can get it right in Pro Tools. <laughs> when there was tape, you had to play the take from even, you know, from the top to the bottom even before they were comfortable punching in. <laughs> and uh, so it's, it's just kind of a different attitude. You still, when I was, when I moved here, we had a click, you know, but but still things could breathe. It wasn't getting snapped to a grid uh, yet. Where <laughs> now, you know, that's just, you know, standard. So, um, you know. Which did you prefer? In, um, you know, maybe, uh, because of my age, I like, I like things to live and breathe and, uh, be in a room with five other people and share ideas and have it, you know, have it be a communal experience. And I think if there's five guys with 10 years experience in the room, that's, that's more than 50 years experience right there. It's just, you gotta be able to bounce ideas off each other and, and try things and, when you get tracks in the mail, you know, you don't always have the opportunity to do that. Right. I remember I started, everything was on tape, and there was very few edits because you're taking a razor blade to tape, and you are you are making some edits, but it wasn't like it is now. Now, I mean, I feel like I'm more of an editor than an actual engineer sometimes. I'm constantly making edits for people. But like you said, with Pro Tools, you can do that. I still like the idea, like you said, you get five to seven guys in the studio and you play to me, that's still the best way to do it. But there's that balance where you can do it in the studio with five, seven guys live, but still record digitally and have the ability to make some changes. Right. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, the Beatles did it with, what, eight tracks and everybody's chasing that still right. with with all the technology and they're not getting there. Well, I remember talking with Eddie Kramer. Eddie Kramer is the guy who engineered a lot of those records or some of those records. When I was talking to him, we were at a school and we were talking to the students and one of the students said, just like you, I, I only put one microphone on the drum kit. And he says, well, if I had the ability to put 12 microphones on the drum kit at the time, I would have done that. But I just yeah. didn't have that ability. And everybody in the room like, oh, I get it now. You experiment with what you have. And yeah. that's all the Beatles were. They were just nothing but a big experimentation. Yeah. And uh, it's funny because you think about, oh, yeah, if I could put 12 mics on there, and then they put 12 mics on there, and then they then they gated them, you know, right. so that it, it was just picking up that one instrument. And then you're triggering samples. and Yeah, you just start going backwards. Yeah. Now, I've been on a ton of sessions where we're catching a drum kit, and they spend all this time setting up the microphones and finding the perfect placement of the kit and the perfect placement of the microphones and then the room microphones. And then at the end of the day, we're replacing everything with samples. Yeah. It's like, I don't, I don't understand. But hey, so during those times, what was your most memorable moment? I think, uh, you know, just some of the, some of the people I got to record with guitar player, Bird Burton, who uh, was with the amazing rhythm aces, Leo Jackson, working with Leon Rhodes, just, you know, Billy Lineman, those Opry A-team guys, just some of those things. Uh, I did some sessions with a guy, Reggie Vincent, who uh, was the co-writer on Billion Dollar Babies for Alice Cooper. 
who also worked with like Liberace and John Lennon. I worked on some of his solo stuff and, you know, just some of those times were, were, were pretty special to me. Yeah. Especially when uh, Billion Dollar Babies was the first album I ever owned. And then I'm, I'm working with the guy that co-wrote it, you know? <laughs> when you're working with people like that, do you feel out of your league? You can't. Uh, that's just, you know, uh, you have to drive the bus, you know, and, and you, you just kind of put those thoughts aside and, and you're there just like they are and anyone else in the room and you put your pants on the same way and you're just there to listen and feel and. Well, even the, the biggest of the biggest artists were always, always nice. There was very few people that weren't nice. When you look back afterwards. Then you go like, wow, you know, that that happened. <laughs> but in the moment, it's just kind of like, you just kind of like suck it up and say, I can't go there. I can't be a fangirl right now. I got to I gotta right. just do my do my job. I always laugh. People ask me all the time, oh, what, you know, what's it like working with this artist or that artist? And I'm like, the people that I get excited about were the producers and engineers. Those were the ones that I looked up to. So getting to work yeah. with some of some of the best of the best producers in Nashville and stuff, I was like, this is great. That's what I liked. The same with me. The other musicians that all of a sudden I'm like, you know, Leon Rhodes was with uh, Ernest Tubb for years. You know, to have him call me to play, you know, that, you know, that that's meaningful, you know, to me. Oh, yeah. That's the stuff that matters yeah. for us. I mean... I'm an engineer, so I look up to engineers and producers. I mean, you're a musician. You're looking up to the musicians. And getting to play with, I mean, even in the studio, getting to record some of these musicians. Like we talked about Jeff King. I mean, Jeff King was always a blast to be around. I know you're on the road with him. Do you ever have a chance to work with him in the studio? No, I haven't. I haven't. But uh, I can see where his personality, you know, just is big in the room. He's just such a funny guy to be around. He is. Speaking of big, I mean, he's a big guy. And when I first met him, I mean, he, he comes across, he looks like a lumberjack. I mean, he's a big dude. And he picks up the guitar, which is tiny next to him. But he comes across like, oh, God, you better stay out of his way. But he is so nice and so funny. It's just yeah. a, a blast to be around. We have a lot of interplay during the uh, Brooks and Dunn gigs. Even You know, I'm, I'm the tech, I'm the drum tech, keyboard tech. So I'm off the stage, at stage right, right where he is. And, you know, we're always passing glances and, you know, kind of, you know, enjoying moments together, you know. Well, let's take a deeper dive into that for a minute. I mean, what's it like being on the road with Brooks and Dunn? Uh, it's, it's outstanding. I did the road for about 10 years when I moved to town. And uh, I kind of got tired of it. I wanted to just chase my dream, not someone else's. So I decided to stay in town and just build up my accounts in town. One of the first friends I met in town was uh, Trey Gray, a drummer, who's drummed with Faith Hill, Brooks and Dunn, Jewel. There's a list. Reba, he was Reba's drummer most recently also. And Trey and I were friends right off the bat. He was in a band, and he left that band, and I took that seat. And then there's been so many gigs where Trey left the seat, and I took the seat. And we've just, you know, we've been brothers, and... So a couple of years ago, they needed a drum tech, and Trey had been with uh, Brooks and Dunn for about 19 years at that point, and uh, they knew that I I maintain kits and take care of kits and tune kits, and Trey has Huntington's disease, which uh, 
I'm, I've always said if I could be out there to support him and to help him, I would go back on the road in a heartbeat to do that. And uh, the crew chief, John Shaw, gave me a call and said, hey, we got this position open. This is what we uh, can offer you to do it. What do you think? And I've got friends in the band. Gary Morris, the steel player, is a good friend of mine. Jimmy Stewart's a good friend of mine. I worked on his uh, project, his demo project, to get him a deal. Lou Toomey. So these guys were just my buds. And it's like Herb Schuker's out there. Herb's a great drummer. He's a guitar tech. Played with Randy Travis. So it was just like I get to go out on the road and hang out with my friends and my best friend, Trey Gray. So it was like, yeah. And they've been touring for over 30 years. And... They know how to do it, you know, with the catering and uh, the way they treat us. There's six buses and six semis, and we're selling out arenas and festivals. And, I mean, we just did a festival like 45,000 people last Friday night in Myrtle Beach. That's amazing. 18,000 sold out in an arena on Saturday, you know. So it's a, it's a big production, and it's a blast. It's a lot of fun. Real good people. I was just working with students the other day and we were talking about the business side of music right now and how the price of everything has gone up and just the price of just running the buses alone has gone through the roof. So to be on the road with six buses is just amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, you know you know, the show's going to be going well if you're on the road with six buses. And, and six semis, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> let's talk about being at tech for a moment. I mean, we know what a musician does. But what's the actual role of the tech? Well, we have hands, local hands in all the venues. So it's not like we're we're lifting cases and things like that. It's uh, the cases get brought up onto the stage and uh, I set up the drums. And what I've done ahead of time is I've spiked the carpet with gaff tape. So I know exactly what stand goes where. There's memory locks on everything. So I'm setting up the drums and I'm cleaning them. And then I'm tuning them. After working with Greg a while, I know how he wants his drums to sound. I use a drum dial, which is a gauge that measures the pressure at each lug on the drum. So it's easy for me to duplicate and replicate the way he likes to have his drums tuned. Talk about that a, a step further, because people hear the drums being tuned a lot. And in the studio, we even have some guys who take the trouble of tuning to the key of a song. Yep. So what does that actually mean? Well, there's, there's a, a membrane on the top and the bottom of a wooden or a metal shell. And there's tension, uh, tension screws, tension rods that hold that membrane in place with a hoop. And you're trying to get the pitch even at each of those screws. And you can get that pitch to match a note or or just to match a, a tone. And then you do that on the top and the bottom. And depending on the relationship, if they're both tuned the same or if they're tuned differently to different pitches, the drum is going to sound different. Okay. So do you typically tune them both to the same? Uh, typically both to the same, yeah. And then you might drop the bottom a little bit just to to get some of that ring out of it the to kill off some of the sustain just so it's not too long depending on the drum it'll have more sustain or not well that's pretty cool so i'm assuming if you're on the road you're not tuning to a song because you're playing so many songs within a night that are in different keys right so is there a good generic spot to tune to it's just uh it's 
it just depends on the size of the drum. You know, if it's a 12, 16 floor tom or a 10, 12, 16, you know, you're kind of going for thirds with three drums. But uh, the floor tom, you might even drop a little lower. It, it just depends on the, what the drummer wants. Trey was very radical, I could say, in his tuning. His overtones, he would like to, them to have a little more character than uh, Greg, say, likes to have more of a, a clear note. So it's, it's just learning the individual drummer. Greg's a beast behind a drum kit, too. Yeah. He just plays for the song. He's, I'd say, simple. You know, and then there's these times where I just kind of see him lean into it and, you know, pull out this monster fill, you know, right. and the kid explodes and he goes back to keeping time. It's very tasty. It's just always very tasty. Always very tasty. Yeah. And thinking about the arrangement, the message that's being conveyed, and, and just even things from night to night where, you know, I can hear like we're on, a, on another instrument in a band might go to like a heavier eighth note just for like a, a, a bar. Just, you know, like a passage into the next section. And I'll hear him, like, just drop out of that eighth note on the hi-hat just because musically it's being picked up somewhere and it doesn't need to get stepped on. You know, just lots of little things like that. I can sense Greg, you know, the way he's tuned in musically listening to everybody. It's nothing about what am I playing, what's my part. It's what's the music wire. No, he's definitely tasteful and, like, he's a beast. He hits those drums hard. He's pretty impressive in general to watch, but in the studio, I always enjoyed working with him. Yeah, he's played on some of my favorite records, so it's just pretty cool. There you go. <laughs> so let's go back to you in the tech world. I mean, describe what your day's like. What time does it start? Ah, so uh, 9 a.m., generally the backline truck is getting unloaded. So the the crew, which is four guys, Brooks and Dunn's crew is four guys, we position ourselves at different places around the arena. And as the, the local hands are wheeling off the cases, we'll point to where we need it to drop so that, you know, we can then our guitar tech, our drum tech station, our other our stage left guitar tech. And then uh, the band gear goes out to the middle of the floor. And then probably about an hour after that, we line it up and get it on a forklift and they forklift it onto the, onto the deck. It gets wheeled over to the sets, and then we open up the cases and start building the sets. And that's probably, we're probably done with that about noon. Well, stop there for for a second, because I'm assuming that this stuff has to be done in some sort of a sequence. Can you just talk a little bit about the sequence? I mean, at 6 o'clock, there's people in there putting chalk marks on the floor, measuring where the lights are going to go, where the video wall is going to go, where the front of house is going to be stationed, monitor world. Then they start bringing in the trusses and hanging the lights and hanging the video wall. Then they have to build the sets and put the sets up there. And then the band gear goes up there, and then that's when we start building the band gear. And then as we're building the band gear, front of house and monitor world's getting wired together. And then by the time we're done with band gear, we generally have power. And then they start miking up the kit and uh, other instruments. You know, we might have a break for lunch while they're miking everything up. And then we'll do a line check around one thirty or 2 o'clock. Then the band shows up for sound check at 2.30. So the line check is just to make sure that each input 
is firing. It's, it's getting to the board. It's getting to the front of house. They'll acoustically check the drums to make sure there's nothing wanky going on. I'm not really playing the drums. I'm just kind of hitting them one at a time to make sure that, that it's all there. And then uh, the band shows up, does an hour sound check from 2.30 to 3.30. They'll run through, they'll run through songs because there's many different instruments. You know, there's one song that the banjos played. So they do that song to make sure that the banjo's working. There's, you know, there's songs with the lap steel instead of pedal steel. So they make sure to cover some of that. Are they singing during the sound check? Yeah, there's uh, Ronnie or, or Kicks will be out there. Sometimes they're not. The, the shows run to tracks, uh, is run to uh, a click track. So, you know, the timing of everything is always the same. For rehearsal's sake, they have a pre-recorded vocals so that while they're rehearsing they can have their their place in the in the song it'd be rough to to go up there and play for an hour right before you have to do your set yeah for the night that's 2 30 to 3 30 but we don't play till nine o'clock at night there's downtime it's like doing two shows in a day though back to your world and on broadway yeah. doing doubles yeah and then uh after the show shows nine to ten thirty generally and then we uh pack it up Backline is the first truck that gets packed. Uh, and then, you know, they start tearing down the audio and tearing down the sets and tearing down the lights and tearing down the video and hit the road at about one in the morning, wake up in a parking lot in some other city. <laughs> so are you working till one in the morning? No, I'm done. I'm done around 11, 1130. All right. But still, from nine to eleven thirty, that's a long day. Yeah, but there's you know it's it's you know it's like what we do, and there's there's breaks in there. You know, like I said, you know we unload the truck at nine, and it takes till nine thirty maybe to get the gear off the off the truck. But then you know we don't get it up on the deck until ten thirty or eleven. So there's an hour there to take things out and tune and clean and you know inspect to make sure everything's didn't get damaged. So, you know, it's a long day. It's a long day and, and all in all, but it's not like I'm in a sock factory or anything. <laughs> That's true. And you get catering. And I get catering, yeah. What's your favorite food on the road? Uh, breakfast. breakfast. <laughs> Just, yeah, I'm easy. Eggs over easy. Bacon, some toast, coffee. See. Yeah, see, I'm more of the dinner guy looking for the steak and the potatoes yeah. and well, we get we get prime rib and pork shoulder and things like that. You know, that's all pretty good too. And it's typically buffet style too, for the most part. You get a few choices. Yeah, and there's vegetarians with us, so there's lots of those types of foods too. <laughs> the the well, ones over nice. there, I go to over there, but the, yeah, the, I go to the, the meat side. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, hey, we do this thing on here we call Unsung Heroes, where we take a minute to shine the light on somebody behind the scenes that doesn't typically get the recognition. So is there anybody behind the scenes that supported you in some way or helps you behind the scenes that you might want to shine a little light on? You know, um, it'd have to be family. You know, it would be the first thing. My wife is ultra, ultra supportive. Can we ever call my wife? <laughs> you know, uh, Bought me a snare drum for my birthday, you know, <laughs> this year, you know. So uh, she's just always, you know, always been patient and always hears my stories when I come home excited from a gig and looks at me like, yeah, yeah, you're not really that cool, you know. <laughs> Keeps me down to earth, you know. Uh, That's awesome. 
then there's you know like the the drum shop here in Nashville, Forks Drum Closet. It's just yep. awesome in the way that anytime I need anything, whenever you know I'm I'm trying to investigate about gear or how to make something work or a part I need, Forks is always there. Is that the one on Eighth or? 12th uh they were on 12th 12th but now they moved over to chestnut over kind of near where the old baseball stadium yep was chestnut and fourth they've got everything and all the guys there they've just been wonderful for years for 30 years i've been in nashville yeah and you know and then there's uh, i've got a business where i maintain house drum kits on lower broadway and there's there's people that help me out when I'm in Iowa and I got a broken bass drum head at Whiskey Row, you know, yeah. I got to figure out how to get them a bass drum head. There's Pittsburgh and Jake and Cindy and Roy that have helped me do that stuff. So, you know, just guys like that. Very cool. That's great. Yeah, I know you were talking about your wife and I bust my wife's cookies all the time, but she's always there to, she puts me in check and she keeps me in line and she makes sure that I don't let something subpar go out. Yeah, it's very, uh, this, being a musician, the focus always seems to be on the music. Uh, What kind of musician am I? What can I play? What's my gear? How do I hold the drumstick? What are my inspirations? All of that stuff. But very little of our focus is business and how to treat what we do as a business so that we can be successful as a business. Being successful as a musician is one thing, but as you know, there are great players out there, but they've got, you know, a Kool-Aid stain on their shirt or, you know, or their their pants are too short. You know what I mean? It's like they just don't have that. They'll get by because they're such geniuses at their instrument, but we all can't be that genius, you know? Some of us are more in the trenches as just working and when you're doing that you have to have you know a good business attitude and it's a balance you know and you have to have to have that and my wife has been very uh very instrumental in smacking me in the back of the head telling me i'm an idiot (laughs) i'm doing something wrong you know (laughs) that's what my wife does but you're right you are your own your own brand you have a reputation that you have to live by and it's up to you to to decide what that reputation is going to be. So if you want to be the one with the Kool-Aid stain on your shirt, then odds <laughs> have it. You better have some amazing talent to back it up because otherwise you're not going to get the gig. Right. And especially in Nashville, the, the saying is you have to be a good hang. So, I mean, everybody says that in the studio. They say it on the road because yep. you're living with these people for a long period of time. And it's better to have somebody you can get along with that can just play then somebody you can't get along with that plays amazing. So That's the most important thing. One hour on stage, 23 hours on a bus. You know, do you want someone's stinky <laughs> socks in the lounge? Do you want them to spill their cereal on the table and not pick it up? That's awesome. Hey, we talk about the attitude and everything of these people that you have to work with. So are you experiencing any hijinks or, you know, jokery <laughs> on the road? Yeah, there's some characters out there. You know, it's, 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 it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Are you one of them? Uh, I, tr- I try not to be. My wife tells me, don't be funny. Uh, <laughs> it just, you know, with Jeff. Jeff King. Jeff King. I just played a little trick on him a week or so ago, and 
I was kind of <laughs> happy with it. <laughs> Jeff King's awesome. He's a funny dude. How do you take your joke? He took it in stride. He he laughed, and then he and then he told a bunch of his friends about it. So that that made me feel good. But I don't feel safe. Well, let me ask you, for those who don't know Jeff King, session player, he's on the road playing guitar for typically Reba, but he's also playing for Brooks and Dunn, and he's a jokester. So I noticed, and I'm going to assume this is in retaliation to your joke, but I saw on his social media a picture of Reba and Jeff playing guitar, but it was your face on Jeff's body. Yes. Well, what happened is we go into the arena and there's pictures on the walls of all the different people that have played there, Pink, Jay-Z, Reba, and of course, standing next to Reba, holding his guitar, cheesing big time, is Jeff King. And I'm just like, golly, you know? So I took a little piece of gaff tape and I put it over and gave him a little mustache on the picture. Nice. And then uh, I wasn't too uh, coy about it and they found out it was me. So then later in the day, they took like a giant picture of just my head and they put it over Jeff's head next to Reba. So I've got like this giant head on Jeff King's body next to Reba. That's and, what I uh, saw. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, the tour manager said, Hey, so did you go take that down? I said, No, I, I didn't I didn't take it down. <laughs> he goes, I said, some people told me to leave it up. He said, who told you to leave it up? I said, well, Jeff King told me to leave it up. He goes, well, okay, that's okay. Okay, then. So we Fair left enough. it up. And what's funny is that if, like, some building manager or some someone cleaning the facility sees that picture taped up there and they right, pull they it down, they'll still be Jeff King with a mustache there. So. <laughs> that's too funny. John, sir. Can't thank you enough for being here. Do you have any final words you'd like to leave us with? I appreciate you having me, Jay. This hour went by real fast. And just a good time, everyone. Enjoy music. Have fun. Now, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. John truly is a great guy, both inside and outside of the business. So please join me in giving a big thanks to John for taking the time to share his stories with us. And thank you for taking the time to hang with me here. I really do appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. You can do just that and find the links to everything mentioned over at jfranzi.com slash episode 16. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Make sure you visit us at jfranzi.com. Follow, connect, and say hello. This episode has been brought to you by VR Knives, your source for 100% custom knives made by a true rock star. So if you're in the market for a new piece of art, reach out to VR Knives. 407-421-5528. 407-421-5528.